Have you noticed how your eyes linger on beautiful things? Um, think about the last time you went to the beach and you saw the sun set. Uh, isn't it true? We do not quickly turn our gaze from the sunset. Even after the sun has completely set, we, we stand there, we linger. Or think about the time when you have reached the summit of a mountain and the vista opens wide before you. Do you turn back as soon as you reach the summit or do you linger? You linger, of course. You stay for a while. Or think about the time you went to a museum and stood, in, uh, stood before a masterpiece painting. You don't quickly rush off, do you? You stand there with your eyes transfixed upon it. We are drawn to beauty, and we linger to take it all in as much as possible. And in some ways, that's exactly what we are doing this morning as we return to Isaiah chapter 55. Now, of course, an argument can be made that every passage of the Bible is beautiful, and that is true. But it seems to me there is a particular beauty in this chapter that it would do well for us to linger a little while longer and take it all in. And of course, as you know, last week we did more of a big picture overview of this chapter. And this morning, I want to just focus on very small parts of this chapter, mainly verse 1 and then verses 4 and 5. And let me unpack it for you in this way. The reason I am inviting you to linger on in this chapter is, first of all, to notice the beautiful invitation, the beautiful invitation. Now, before we get to that, let me set the scene for you a little bit. Now, the Jewish people had a very particular vision for the world. Their vision for the world, I think I can summarize it like this. They knew that they were God's chosen and favored people. And so they knew beyond the shadow of doubt that when God finally sets all things right, when God finally brings order into the world, then they knew that the Jews will lord over the nations and the Gentiles will finally get what's coming to them. That was their vision for the world. And in their vision, history had really one goal. History had the one goal to prove the superiority and the uniqueness of the Jewish nation over against all other nations because, you see, they, they were the chosen people of God. They were the favored people. However, their vision for the world made some parts of God's word either unintelligible at best or at worst. Their vision for the world made God, some parts of God's word, rather irritating. And it's a tragedy because we don't need to look elsewhere, but just remember what Isaiah has been saying to us about the nations. Because Isaiah does not see the nations being 
humiliated before the Jews, and he does not see the nations being relegated to a lower caste when God sets all things right. Rather, Isaiah's vision for the world is that the nations will share in Israel's joy and glory, and the nations will become God's covenant people just like the Jews. So if you remember all the way back to chapter 2, verse 2, this is what we read from the very beginning of the book. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Now that phrase, latter days, is a very important phrase in the Old Testament because it speaks to that day, that day of final judgment when God sets all things right. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Now remember, the Old Testament temple, the nations were barred from entering it. The Gentiles could not go to the center, the most important part of God's temple. But Isaiah looks forward to the day when At last, God sets all things right. The nations will not be relegated as second-class citizens, but they will flow stream into God's temple. Or we might remember chapter 11, verse 10. In that day, again, another one of those very important phrases pointing to the final day of judgment when God sets all things right. In that day, the root of Jesse... Of course, that's a very important description for Christ. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, plural, meaning the nations, and of him shall the nations inquire. When God completes his work, it won't just be the Jewish people who look to the Messiah, but the nations We'll seek out the Messiah. And most, more recently, chapter 42, verse 6, God said of his suffering servant, the Messiah, he said, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Now, these are just three examples of Isaiah's vision for the world. Whereas the Jewish people's vision for the world was one in which that they were elevated and exalted over the nations and the Gentiles got what what they had coming, Isaiah's vision for the world was very different. It sees the work of the Messiah to be so powerful and so universal that it even brings the Gentiles into God's family and makes them God's covenant people. And that's very important to realize because for the Jewish people, if you were to ask them, what is the greatest heresy of all time? The Jewish people would have a likely answer that they know no greater heresy than that God loves the nations. You see, to the Jewish people, that was the greatest heresy that God loves the nations. And that is why the Jews were enraged at Jesus, if you remember Luke chapter 4, 
when Jesus reminded the Jews that, that Elijah, the prophet, was sent, there were many widows in Israel, but God sent Elijah to a widow, a Gentile widow. And do you remember how enraged the Jews were? They wanted to kill Jesus. Why? Because Jesus had the audacity to remind them that God cared about a Gentile widow. And then do you remember how viciously and how hostile the Jews were in opposing Paul's ministry to the Gentiles? Why? Because they had a very specific vision for the world. They had a very specific idea when they thought about the goal of history. And for them, the greatest heresy was that God loves the nations as much as he loves the Jewish people. That is why the invitation of this chapter, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, everyone, not just the Jews, because it's not just the Jews who have spiritual thirst, but all the nations, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You know, this is one of the most beautiful commands in the entire Bible, because this invitation is not just for the Jews, because if you notice, if you remember verses 4 and 5, Behold, I made him, I made my son, the Messiah, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So it looks forward to the day when God glorifies his son and the Messiah. And when that happens, it won't just be the, the ethnic Jewish people, the people who count Abraham as their physical forefathers, but everyone who feels the hunger, everyone who feels the thirst, and then turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, they will be saved. They will be welcomed. And that's God's vision for history, to bring salvation to all peoples. So that's why we linger on in this chapter, to note and to revel in that beautiful invitation. Secondly, we want to linger on Jesus. Again, chapter 55, verse 1, come, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Now, if we ever had any doubts as to what that means, the New Testament spells out for us what that means. John chapter 7, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you see how that is a direct explanation and the fulfillment of the words of Isaiah chapter 55? Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
What waters? And Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see, God's vision for history and for the world is to save the nations in Jesus Christ. That is why God's purpose, His goals all culminate in Jesus Christ. And Jesus is not just the Savior of the Jews only, but of the Gentiles. So John chapter 7, very next verse. After Jesus says, if on, after Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. In the very next verse, this is what he says. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out of whose heart? Out of Jesus' heart, will flow rivers of living water. I love that. You know, you're thirsty, and maybe what you had in mind is a nice glass of water. But that won't do. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, come to me, because what I'm giving you is not going to be a glass of water. What I'm giving you will be a river of living water. You can drink to your full, and it will never run out. And when Jesus says, whoever believes in me, that word whoever flings the door to God's kingdom wide open, including the Gentiles. Because do you remember what Jesus promised to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, just a few chapters before this? In John chapter 4, verse 10, this is what Jesus said. Jesus answered the Samaritan woman saying, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Do you see what Jesus is doing? The Samaritan woman, she was a Gentile, and not just a Gentile, but a social outcast with a scandalous past. And he offers her the living water. She is the recipient of the promise of Isaiah chapter 55, come, everyone who thirsts. And Jesus is saying to her, to a Gentile woman with the sordid past, if you would only ask me, I will give you the living water. And if you go back a few more chapters in John's gospel, and as we read earlier this morning in chapter 3, you meet a man named Nicodemus. What a contrast. In chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, the Gentile woman with the sordid and checkered past. Nicodemus in chapter 3, he is a teacher of Israel, a ruler of the Jews, an upstanding citizen, a very important person of the society. But what did Jesus say to him? Someone who has spent his entire life studying scriptures, he, says, he said to him, you must be born again. 
You see, salvation is the same for the Jews and for the Gentiles. The requirement for salvation for the Jew as well as the Gentile is whoever believes in me. Whoever believes in me. Whether you were raised in a conservative home, strict in morality, and you've lived a respectable life all your life, or you've spent your life rebelling, chasing after every desires, whatever your background, whoever you may be, the way to God and the only way to God is whoever believes in me. And God says, come, and we come to Jesus. That is all that God requires. And God's invitation requires no payment. You know, we are, we are all broken people, yearning to be made whole again. And our brokenness sometimes shows up in obvious ways. You know, when you look at someone who's whose body, whose life, uh, lives have been ruined by sin. And that's such an obvious way, isn't it, that sin has broken them. It has affected, it has destroyed their character, their desires, relationships, even their health. And you see them carrying in their hearts shame and guilt. And the way that these people are broken by sin is very obvious. But you know, there are, there are other ways that sin breaks us. You know, we are all alienated from God. And we try to fill that void with various substitutes. And sometimes the substitutes are crass and dehumanizing. Uh, such as living for sin's pleasures. But at other times, our brokenness shows up in our compulsion to fill the void in our heart with something. And sometimes the substitute that we have in God's place is refined. And it even looks noble, such as pursuing a great project, or doing charity work. But whether our brokenness is obvious and crass or more hidden behind good manners and noble purposes, we are being driven by a compulsion. And compulsion for the younger people is the thing that makes you do something. You can't get away from it. It drives you. It forces you. And we, all of us, we live our lives being driven by this need to find wholeness, to be made whole again. But that exactly is our brokenness, that we refuse to see that our brokenness is so great that it is something that only God can fix. The thirst that we have, that we are constantly trying to quench by chasing after things, experiences, projects, goals. This is a thirst that only Jesus can satisfy. 
And Jesus says, come, come to me. And he is ours only for believing. So let me ask you, what is driving you? What compulsions, what deep cravings, longings control your life? Again, they may be something obviously crass and sinful. Or it may look very respectable. But whatever it is, if you are not coming to Jesus to satisfy your thirst, you are broken and you will never be whole. Jesus has come. Come to him. So we linger on Jesus. Lastly, beauty is for sharing. Beauty is for sharing. Now we just saw how John chapter 7 really explains and answers the cry of Isaiah chapter 55, come everyone who thirsts. And interestingly, very interestingly, we go to the very end of the Bible and we hear that call once again because in Revelation chapter 22, we see at last God's vision for the world fulfilled. And in verse 1, this is what we read. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the land. And then a few verses later in verse 17, the spirit and bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Do you see how Isaiah 55 is in the background of these words, along with John chapter 7, when Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And what do we find? Again, not a cup of water, but a mighty river. Mighty river flowing from the throne of God, crystal clear, the water of life. Because when history finally measures up to God's purposes, that's the invitation that we hear. Come to the water of life. And every soul, every soul that has believed in Jesus and conquered over the world with him, will forever drink from the river that never runs dry. Because Jesus will be to them and Jesus will be to you an everlasting source of life, an everlasting source of satisfaction, an everlasting source of delight. I love that, don't you? I think we often think too little of heaven. 
But the way that we need to think about heaven is, is that we are that parched, thirsty people looking for water. And maybe the only thing that we ever expected was a cup of water. But what God gives you instead is a river, a mighty torrent. You could dive into it. You could never drink it full. It'll never run dry. And that's what Jesus promises to be forever, eternal satisfaction, eternal delight. And doesn't that just put into perspective that the short-sighted ways we try to satisfy the cravings of our hearts? And doesn't it make you wonder, why am I so foolish? Why am I willing to trade eternity for fleeting moments worth of illusion. But notice something else also. Those who have heard and answered the call to come now repeat the invitation. The spirit and bride say, come. You see, it was God's spirit in Isaiah 55 that's who said, come everyone who thirsts. And the people who have heard that call, people who have come to Jesus, now join the Spirit in one voice and say, come. Why? Beauty is for sharing. Jesus saves people so that they, so that we might repeat the invitation to other people. The Jewish people's vision for the world was to keep God's favor all to themselves. But that is not God's wish, and that is not God's vision. And our vision for history must be the same as God's vision for history. And God invites the whole world to Christ, and we must also And God is not ashamed to invite the whole world to his humble, humiliated, suffering and dying servant. And we are not ashamed to invite the world to the suffering, dying, and rising from the dead, ascending into heaven in glory, Son of God and our Christ. You said that's our vision for history. That's our vision for the world. And so I ask you, will you repeat that invitation to the world? The spirit and bride say, come. And that's our message to the world. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Come to Jesus. Repeat that invitation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Thank you for the promises, wonderful, amazing 
promise is so great that we can hardly comprehend. For you promised to us nothing less than the world. And as if that wasn't enough, you promised to us your whole being. And so, Lord, we pray that we may not give our hearts to another, that we may not spend our lives chasing after the compulsions, the cravings, the desires of the world, but that we may look to you and know that you and you alone can quench our thirst and satisfy our longings. So, Lord Jesus, we pray, be highly esteemed and exalted in our hearts. May we see in you our greatest treasure and the object of love. And we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.